This is Medicine on the Frontier, a unique expeditions podcast hosted by Luke Whittle-Gillard and Matt Hans. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Medicine on the Frontier. As many of you know, Matt and I both have a background in diving and we are joined by someone who has done basically everything when it comes to diving. But before we introduce him, I wanted to bring the attention of all of you to a couple stories which I've seen recently which are actually quite sad. Over the past few months, we have seen multiple stories of divers losing their lives underwater. These have all been really experienced divers with an investigation currently underway into the death of Paul Smith in September. He was struck by a boat while diving in the UK, but he's not the only one. Dennis Reed, another experienced diver, died in Cyprus in October during a wreck penetration. And even a leading cave diver named Brett Hemphill sadly died inside a famous cave system called Phantom Springs, which is the deepest cave in the United States. Brett especially was known for adhering to safety regulations. And Matt, you know, as I've said, you and I both love diving. And you know, we offer our condolences to these families and, and the friends of these divers. But it strikes me that all these divers are really experienced in what they do, and yet they still lost their lives. Absolutely, Luke. It's a really sad story. And um, as we touched on previous episodes, when we've been discussing maybe people who are pushing the limits of their experience, maybe running a little bit too quickly through a system. This is obviously the polar opposite. This is extremely experienced divers. Um, but again, we, we're all very aware of the risks and things we do. People, these people are experienced divers. It is, um, in, in most forms, actually quite an extreme hobby, an extreme sport. Um, and I think people, when you get to those levels, you are they're genuinely pushing limits. That's how you keep it interesting. So sadly, accidents do happen, uh, and I hope the investigations come back with um, some some good reasoning behind them. It's really hard to discuss individual cases without the information, but um, yeah, it's it's very sad. But that's you know, people sadly do die loving, you know, doing what they absolutely love. Yeah, and it is, and you know, it's one of those things of we we can't obviously speculate what's going on but it's something that shows that even people that have been doing it for years are at risk and that you know we really do have to make sure that we put every safety precaution in and hopefully we can learn from these tragedies but joining us today is someone as i said who knows all about diving his name's andy torbett he's a cave diver free diver explorer he was previously in the army's underwater and parachute trained explosive ordnance disposal team he served around the world, but his adventures actually increased since leaving the army. He's worked as various uh, TV program presenters. He's a skydiver, stuntman, and overall outdoorsman. Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure to have you. So, Andy, just you know, you, you heard what we were just talking about there. What are your thoughts on this? Well, you know, as you mentioned, I can't, I don't actually know the specifics of any of the um, of any of the the incidents. The thing about the, these risks is that certainly underwater we are as human beings it is the environment on earth that we at least evolved to survive in is the bottom line you know that that's why you know nasa isa roscosmos the, the chinese space agency used an underwater environment as a what they call a terrestrial analog for for going to space you know and we are unless we're free diving we're on a breath hold that's fair enough but it's a very short term thing even the world's greatest you know so it's, it's it's missing a few minutes for for deep diving, for cave diving, uh, underwater exploration, we are wholly, like astronauts, we are wholly reliant on the technology we take down there to keep us alive. And not just in the form of so we can breathe in and out, but, you know, 
protect us thermally from the cold because even in waters and I've I've done this of like twenty eight degrees Celsius, which sounds super warm, which would and, and it is, but if you spend hours and hours and hours, mm. you know, six, seven, eight hours in twenty eight degrees Celsius water, you will still get hypothermia because it will still, you know, water conducts heat about twenty five times greater than, than air, so it will still bring that core temperature about thirty seven down enough to get you make you hypothermic. So we're not very well evolved to, to be underwater. And because of that, there are a great deal of of, of risks involved um but my approach has always been that you know paranoia saves lives so when i go and do something like say i'm cave diving say it's, we'll, 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 make, we'll, we'll use the most extreme example i can think sure. of so, so solo cave diving exploration so you're diving in a in a, in a flooded uh, cave system it's unexplored unmapped and you're on your own um now cave diving is a purely psychological sport you know you don't have to be the brains of you know uh, brains of britain and neither do you have to be an olympic athlete but but it's a it's arguable sort of psychologically oppressive environments to be in you're underwater it's often cold it's dark it's claustrophobic you know um so you have to be prepared for that and the certain the, the approach that i've taken in the past is you know you, you don't save your life in the moment you save your life or prevent any problem in the first place in the the days week months years beforehand uh, in the training and all that you do and in, in, in preparation but really it comes down to the the plan i'll sit at home you know when you've got there's no point trying to solve problems if you can help it when it, the you know when you're in a sort of state of panic or it's all going wrong that's when your iq drops through the floor and you know your mm. manual dexterity goes as well I, i've found sit at home in your pants you know with your mug of tea you know nice and in, in the warm we've got bags of time and i just go right Let's think of all the things that could possibly go wrong. Yeah. Um, and then you try and prevent those things from happening. And if you're satisfied that you've eliminated that problem, which is either very rare or nigh impossible, you then decide, right, have I mitigated enough? And that's dependent on a few things as well. And then if you if you think, right, no, I've, I've not mitigated enough, then I will... Um, I will put some form of redundancy in place. I'll go right. If I if I can't guarantee that thing won't happen, then I'm going to assume it's going to happen. So when it happens, what am I going to do? Um, and then you're more prepared to to deal with these sort of things. But you know, as you mentioned, the most experienced guys in the world can can still get problems. You can't. There is no guarantees. It was Clint Eastwood once famously said, um, "If you want a guarantee, buy a toaster." <laughs> so you know, you have to be. You have to be. Um, conscious of the still existing risks uh, mm. and what the potential outcomes if they come to fruition are and you have to be happy with that or not and if you're not don't go um, and that's a very personal subjective thing you know a, 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 a one risk for one person is acceptable and it's not acceptable for another and that, that's a personal thing it's so interesting because i did my technical rebreather training earlier this year and it was that whole thing of it's never wrong to bail out. And yeah. I think that was a really good mentality to have. Um, but it's it's interesting because w when you and I spoke, Andy, in this caving environment, and a lot of people I know have seen the, the films and the documentaries about the Thai cave rescue, even if you are in a buddy team, you are by yourself. Yeah, completely. So, uh, you know, sometimes I'll be in social media and I'll, I'll post something and then there'll be a lot of people, usually they kind of inexperienced divers shall we say who have been trained maybe you know to level one or two in recreational and who who quite rightly have been drilled into them you know the body body system you know mm. 
and I'll be doing a cave dive of my own, and they'll be like on the comments, you know, oh, slating you. And so it's usually a little bit of knowledge can be a dangerous thing. It's like, no, no, no. It, and then usually the other cave divers will jump. I don't tend to respond to comments. <laughs> I just, that's, it's not worth it. I've got I'm too busy. But, you know, other cave divers will be like, watching, no, 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 though. the guy knows what he's doing. <laughs> yeah, for, for what's nice, it's, what it's nice is, I don't matter. I don't, I don't, I, surprisingly, I don't care about the negative stuff that much. Um, you, you know, years ago when I first left the forces and it first started happening, I was writing articles. But this is like before social media, you know, when, when magazines were still a thing. And um, I had the first kind of negative comment. And I, if you'd asked me beforehand, I would have said, yeah, I'm, it's probably going to make me lose my rag. I'm going to want to get in the car and drive to that bloke's house and, you know, fill him in. <laughs> and surprisingly, I was, I, mean, I was surprised that I was like, eh, just didn't care. Just did not care. And then a few of the people started kind of jumping in defending me. And that's it. So actually, I find those sort of things quite quite nice because you know you get one bad comment yeah yeah whatever because it's from somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about and then mm. either mates of yours or people who do know what they're jump in to defend you and you think ah so actually it tends to be quite a positive thing anyway getting back to the point <laughs> where were we so yeah so I, I'll do solo cave diving and, and you know oh, that's a bit dangerous now because in reality in both solo and, and a lot of like um, the, the, the deep technical stuff. So maybe not in a, in a cave, but you're in a shipwreck, say 120 meters so down. Mm. Um, you still, certainly in a cave, you, you you treat it as a solo dive, and for reasons we'll go in a second. And in, in, in deep diving, you treat it as initially a solo dive. So in a cave, because it may be so tight um, that you're moving through, that if you're having a problem, the guy behind you, even if you can see you're having a problem, can't actually get to you you can't you know get around the side it's basically you know your fins your feet your flippers will be in his face and he can't he can't do about you're giving problems the guy in front of you isn't gonna be able to turn around to check on you anyway so you can't see and if he, if he was psychically knew you're in a problem he can't he can't turn around so what the hell is he gonna be able to do for you but also in caves you know my felt myself my friend chris did one in france last last year it was like a five six hour dive on scooters through this big cave system we're falling on a light it wasn't exploration but or kit testing and stuff like that and um you know there could be like is he scooting the line i'm scooting the line he might be 10 meters ahead of me he's not constantly stopping to turn around to check on me because that just makes it in a very inefficient way to dive so scooters i should say are like uh, diver propulsion vehicles for those who don't know they're like little torpedoes that you hold on to and you pull you through the water um and also the vis is bad so he can't constantly be but you can't be checking on each other. So you, again, you have to be wholly self-reliant. Mm. And even on deep shipwreck dives, you might bail out onto open circuits or scuba gear. Now at depths, and I won't, I won't go too much into the physics for those who don't know, because I, I don't want to bore people too much. But <laughs> the deeper you go, the less, the less time a, a scuba cylinder will last. Just take my word for it. So at 120 meters, you bail out onto your 11 liter bailout cylinder. It's going to last probably about a minute because you know so after that as a team we will have we will carry space so i will not have enough gas on me to get me back to the short line back to the surface for 120 meters with my with all my decompression it, you physically couldn't carry it all but as a four-man team we can so initially it's a solo dive in the sense that i'll bail out and look after myself until i can get to a buddy and be like help me help me and then they'll be giving me gas and be with me as a team or the rest of the way up um, and I would, I always, when I'm even talking to recreational divers, you know, your paddy divers who go off and dive in the Red Sea, you know, on a single tank of air to 30 meters. And that's great. I'm not discouraging it. Fantastic. But I'm like, guys, to say that one of your, one of your means of mitigating a danger, one of your redundant plans, if you run out of air or whatever it is, oh, my buddy will save me. Well, A, that's naive. 
um, mm. and it's putting a lot of pressure and responsibility on someone else, which could be a stranger, or could be your mate, but even if it's your mate, it's a hell of a thing to do to somebody. But also, again, it's 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 impractical because even if you if you're if you're in the red sea diving, you're looking at the fish, you're looking at the shipwreck, you're not constantly, and it only takes seconds for something to go badly wrong underwater. Mm. Because that's the thing I'll, I'll 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 mention now is that diving, certainly cave diving, cave diving is a very binary sport. Okay, so you mentioned earlier that I do skydiving and I do uh, like rock climbing and, and things like that. And just like this, to take skydiving as a good example. Skydiving goes wrong, you know, um, and I could something goes wrong and I don't fix it. Um, I can, you know, have a bad landing and maybe twist an ankle, or I can break my tibia, or I can break my femur, or I can break my back, or I could be in a coma, or I could die. There's a graduation, increasing kind of graduation of potential outcomes there. No one really gets injured cave diving. You know, mm. you, you get injured caving, like dry caving, maybe carrying mm. dive equipment through a dry cave to get to the dive site, because frankly, dive kit always a ton. Um, that's the hardest bit. Um, but in, in a cave diving scenario, you know, three things happen. It all goes well and you come out fine. It, it doesn't go well, but you fix it because of one of the plans and training and skill and equipment that you've, you've put in place uh, and you come out in one piece or it goes badly, you don't fix it and you die. That's it's it's a and and that's not again not to put people off I'm not to paint this picture that that cave diving is only for heroes it's it's not you know it's it's actually a it's a it's a it's a discipline that can be done very safely as long as you do it right um but it's not a forgiving environment you know mm. you 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 kind of have to bring your a game each time you know if you're a bit off your game when you're skydiving and you 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 mess up you might get away with a you know a broken leg but if you if you mess up cave diving and mess up and don't fix it then the outcome can be a lot more serious wow that's 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 one way of starting the podcast isn't it i would love to go cave diving i definitely don't think i'm anywhere near ready for it yet i've done dry caving but it's definitely something to build up to so andy if we if we go back to the beginning how did you know first off did you know from a young age that you wanted this kind of career that you have now, which is basically the real life action man. Oh, I wouldn't go, go that far, but um, you, well, first thing actually, before we go on to that, is it's worth pointing out that, um, and I, I keep saying this to people, you know, especially on, on social media, it's like, right, I'm showing you front of house, you know, I'm mm. showing you the, the shop window. So whether it be Instagram or even this podcast, we're going to talk about, you know, diving and some of the cool stuff I've done and all that sort of stuff, and about danger and risk and, but you know, there's there's another side to it. Uh, in that, you know, I've got kids and a house and I've got to pay the mortgage and I've got to do emails and, you know, I've got to drive places and sit in the airport. So, so again, because I'm always telling people this, that, you know, because you're like, people got this image that, ah, oh, and, and part of that's my fault because I've kind of projected this image because that's, you know, front of house and how you how you kind of earn your living, but, but oh, action man. And like, yeah, but if you probably broke my life down into, you know, a bar chart, the, the leveling for, for sort of, or, or, or competing for first place would be like sat behind a driving uh, a steering wheel or sat behind a, a laptop that's the kind of reality but action but, man does admin well yeah exactly <laughs> you know what i mean i mean it, it, don't be wrong everything i sort of talk about i have done and it is true but it's not the whole story i don't spend i don't wake up in the morning and jump up a plane and then in the afternoon dive in a cave every single day um anyway getting back to your quote point which was what again <laughs> <laughs> so, to start to start off with like growing up was this always something you wanted to do to have these big adventures 
yes, actually. Um, you know, as a kid growing up, um, I mean, I was always into like, you know, I, I had action men. I, I used to, you know, and, and I'd have posts on my wall from like the Royal Marines and the and the army, you know, sort of, you know, military type stuff because me and brother always were going to sort of join the forces. But also, you know, you look at things like Jacques Cousteau and, and uh, and even things like you know is it Doctor Challenger and, and you know from Jules Verne and all that sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, I think I always did. Uh, but I mean, it seemed a bit unreal that you could actually do this as a job or, or even go on expeditions. So you know, the, for for a, for a sort of simple country lives in the Highlands of Scotland, from a working class family, the the way to kind of have a similar life to that was to join the forces um so that was kind of always what we, we me and brother were going to do um so yeah and then, then when i left the force i left I was like right i'm gonna make a living from i'm gonna be like the underwater version of uh you know ronald fines and nick jack used to all that sort of stuff and then i kind of realized that it turns out people certainly in that day and age won't just give you money to go off on an expedition and have a good time <laughs> and so, still now yeah. Yeah. <laughs> surprisingly People wouldn't just give you money to go and do stuff. Um, but what I learned was that if you could kind of communicate these things, then you could you could begin to start eking out something. And and, that, and I started, so I started writing for, for, for diving magazines. Um, you know, learn how to use a camera, kind of learn how to write. Uh, but was was you know was um, was subsidised it massively from doing either outdoor work, you know, taking people climbing and coast steering and canoeing and all that sort of stuff um, and a bit of safety diving work for, for wildlife documents and a lot of ex-forces work at the time so initially the old ex-forces market abroad and that was kind of paying me to go into these expeditions and projects and um, so you know I might get paid 300 quid for, a, for an article but it was cost me like 600 quid to do the project that we, you know, the mm. article was based on so I was definitely in, not in profit in that sense but it's the first step and, and, and I was always the opinion that but, um, and, and how I started was like, right, I want to write for magazines. I've got no journalistic training or background, so I don't expect everyone to give me a, a break. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and do something that's unusual and a bit kind of newsworthy. And I'm going to write the article and get the photographs. And then I'm going to go around and start knocking on doors. Uh, and fortunately, the first magazine I knocked the door off on, I thought that makes sense. Um, <laughs> yeah, took the article. And I'm still writing articles for that editor now. That editor, I've, I've known Simon... Yeah, like seventeen years, um, and he still he still takes most of the stuff I write off me. So um, <laughs> yeah, he he because um, I, I I put the article in, he's like, great, fantastic, right? What's next? And like, oh, okay, um, and and that's what it starts with. So from there, you know, I started doing like talks at again dive shows, and then suddenly outdoor shows. Um, it was easy at the outdoor shows because outdoor shows are mostly like climbers and mountaineers, maybe the odd kayaker, you know. Um, there was no real divers go, uh, kind of kind of operating in that, in that world, so I was I was it, which was easy to kind of stand out a little bit, and that tracks sponsors. Even if it's not money, it's it's, it's equipment which I needed mm. to buy. So you know, money saved is money out, um, and then from there, kind of moved into the the, the TV world. Um, I love that money saved is money earned. I need to start using that for all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the thing is that the the dive companies that I work with are all really small companies. Like diving's a niche mm. thing. They've got they have they, they can't afford to pay ambassadors or that sort of stuff. Sure. Um, and to be honest, the ones I've I've been working with, you know, most of them I've been working with for like. 14, 15 years. So they're mates of mine. You know, some came to my wedding. Um, the guys who run these companies and. But it's kit I'd have to buy anyway. Like, how would yeah. have, so it is. It is money, money saved. So you can appreciate and support them from from that point of view because, you know, I'd I'd have to 
spend the money and buy the kit so it saves me and also it's quite nice that if i draw like you know a dry suit breaks i'll phone up one of the guys at fourth element like tony who's a dry suit guy they're like mate i need i need this thing patched but, I, but i'm going to shoot and choose it's like all right curate it down today i'll patch it tonight and then i'll send it back up to you and like okay cool man so uh that, that that's quite useful it's a, it's a useful number to have on speed dial yeah. yeah you don't have any journalistic tra- training but you have you you didn't go straight to the army. You had a bit of a an interesting path into the army. Uh, yeah. So well, um, I was gonna join at sixteen. Cause my brother, my brother joined. My older brother, he joined at sixteen, uh, and I was gonna join at sixteen. But I, I did. You know, I did reasonably well at school, um, and um, the sergeant major from the army's career, the careers office in Aberdeen, which is where I went along, he was like, hmm, if you were my son, I'd tell, with these sort of results, I'd tell you to go to university, have a good time, and then join as an officer. And I was like, at least try to, I was like, nah, not, not, not for me, not, not for me. I'm not, not interested in that sort of behavior. And I think mostly it was kind of reverse snobbery. I was like, ah, pe- people like me, don't become officers like and i still this kind of meant it's, it's, and it's it's entirely different to how i perceived it and it's a lot more different even now um i mean there are still parts of the army where yes you you have to play polo to get a bit there's, there's a one or two regiments but, but they are very very much the uh the the, the rare cases the vast majority of the british forces uh cross board you know air force army royal marines and, and Royal navy couldn't give a monkeys they care about quality you know mm-hmm. that's all they really care about um and but I was still like, no, nah, no, nah, you know, I, 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 that's just, I can't do that. Um, and my brother, who joined the army at 16 as a boy soldier, um, he was 20 and he got picked up, I think it was the last corporal, he, he got picked up for his commission and was sent to Sandhurst. And suddenly you're like, well, hang a second, this this is a bit weird. And it was him, it was, like, it was a Sharps like, rifles. He, um, you know, he came home and said, you know, because he was he was kind of from the, you know, from the same world as me. He was like, no, 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 it's it's not what you think. Mm. You know, he went into well, he was this Royal Signals. They went to the to the Remi, so the Royal Electrical Mechanical Engineers. He's like, they don't care. They don't they don't care about where you've come from. Um, so it's only think, oh, maybe maybe this is what I should do. And you know, he was coming back. He'd been some really cool places. He was earning really good money compared to you know relative to where we were, mm. and. Um, so yeah, I went. I went to university instead, and and study. And because I wasn't, I didn't. You know, I didn't want to be a doctor in the army or an engineer, in the army. Um, I didn't have to do anything vocational. So uh, the, I was advised, but again, by the, the the sergeant major at the army careers office, he's like, "Well, just go and do something you actually enjoy." So yeah, I studied zoology, uh, <laughs> and actually, and actually, and archaeology. So I did zoology and archaeology, sort of twinned in my first couple of years. And then because you couldn't do a dual degree in them, in the end, I specialised in one. So my third year, I did zoology. So my degree was in zoology. So yeah, I um, went to uni and did sharks and lions for three years, <laughs> and then <laughs> joined up. It could have been Indiana Jones rather than Action Man. Well, well, the thing. So during COVID, uh, I did a master's in archaeology. Uh, just to keep things sticking over. So I've, I've now, because I, I was always kind of like, not, not, didn't regret choosing zoology over, over archaeology. It was always like, ah, I would have liked to have done archaeology. So over COVID, for that sort of couple of years, 2021, I did a, I did a, it was a kind of distance learning thing through yeah. the uh, University of Leicester in uh, in archaeology. I have a master's in archaeology. What a I did, I, I did my, well, yeah, well, I don't know. It's difficult. I mean, I was, I was just, you know, I was, you know, 20 years, no, more than that. God, I'm being, Kind myself like thirty years since I left university or started university. I can't remember. But anyway, the um, 
I kind of forgotten how to l- learn academically. You know, I've done a lot of courses and skills over the years, but just mm. that whole academia thing is a it's a different system, and it took me a while to kind of yeah i was i kind of struggled with that that part of it yeah but um yeah it was okay i mean i enjoyed my dis- i did a dissertation on uh basically i did it on cave diving <laughs> nice. so i was like right i yeah i need to well, i was like how how do you kind of minimize the work here right do something you already know so um <laughs> yeah. so i did it on you know ar- cave diving in, in archaeology so it wasn't too much of a stretch but again what, what was that nice i think was that it was very unusual as far as the assessors were concerned because they'd all yeah, like, they'd never like, seen that they're all like doctor professor of archaeology so it was something like they were really they when i spoke to my tutor about it she's like oh this is yeah everybody in the, in the department i think it's great we're really interested in reading about this um because for them it was unusual whereas my my mates in the cdg the, the the cave diving group who who are cave divers they're all like yeah yeah we know all about that they, they were not impressed but the academics <laughs> work is you know yeah because it's always a thing that you um you know the world is relative, so again, even talking about risk and danger. But your your world's very small. My world's very small. I think everybody's world's relatively small. So you know, people think, you know, about oh my god, cave diving is really dangerous or cave diving is really impressive, whatever it is. But my mates who you know world class cave divers, they're like, yeah, and same as skydiving. Like I'll go and do skydiving. And I'll do I, I compete at speed skydiving. But one problem, best mate from skydiving is an ex-world champion. So I go and do these speeds and people go, oh my God, it's amazing. It's like, well, not really because my mate who was filming this can do like loads faster than me. So He was going the same speed as me with a camera. Yeah, 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 that's pretty much it. It's like when I go diving, I've got my, my, my best mate from diving. I've got a couple, but, but one of them's an underwater cameraman um, who's a, you know, again, phenomenal cave diver and deep, deep technical diver and a cameraman. Um, so we'll go and be filming these things to the BBC in this like flooded mine system. You're down like I don't know, 30, 40 meters down. You're into the cave system, and it's all the visitors getting. It's all a bit dodgy. You're like, oh my god, that looks terrifying. How do you manage it? You know, you're going. Well, you're watching the film of me doing it, so you must realise the bloke behind me with a <laughs> massive camera and massive lights who's doing everything I'm doing, but also you know managing the lights and the camera and getting the shots. Uh, you know, and trying to kind of direct and edit the whole thing in his head. So, uh, so, so, so yeah, it's. Um, you know, it's all, it's all, and it's the same in the stunt world that that you know you can be a top level like diver or top or you know team GB skydiver, but you be in a team and there'll be like an, an ex world rally champion guy doing some driving or ex world enduro champion sat over there, or you know the seven times undefeated world kickboxing champion sat there, or a ex British you know gymnast sat yeah. there, or the lead the lead you know acrobat from the Cirque du Soleil or you know Olympic decathlon one of the guys was 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 went to the Olympics as a decathlete so you're in this room and you're like yeah I'm I'm nothing special mm. you know so um so that's that's I quite which quite like it's it's nice to be in a room like that yeah it is yeah they say surround yourself with your uh, with your idols right it's a good way mm. to be yeah exactly. tell me a little bit about your career mate in the military so you you obviously did a university degree in zoology and mm. then what came next? I actually joined the Royal Marines to start with, but um, I injured my spine pretty badly and um, was medically uh, discharged from the Marines. But but not not so badly I couldn't join the Army. Just this what's called physical Institute of commando service. So, um, but it put a question mark over my fitness. So I managed to convince the, the Army to to to, to take me on uh, with certain sort of I don't know caveats. 
Um, and I joined the raw engineers, uh, which aren't engineers. People, people think that means you, you're an engineer, not at all. They're, they're kind of, uh, we call combat engineers or sappers. So, so we do all the kind of weird and wonderful stuff. Um, and uh, they have para, para units, so airborne units, they have commando units, they, 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 the army divers um, all come from the raw engineers. Uh, EOD, the, uh, bomb disposal and high research is, is come from the engineers. So I thought, right, these guys have got loads of cool little specializations. So I joined the, those. Um, and then the first thing I did was I went and undertook the Army dive course, which uh, is six weeks long, doesn't contain a huge amount of, of diving. It's mostly press-ups and running, to be brutally honest, as most <laughs> Army courses are. Um, but I, you know, I loved it because I'd been doing a lot of diving up to that point, but it's sort of civvy diving, so sort of kind of recreational diving. And this was completely different. We had full face masks, we had underwater comms, you know, we were doing stuff at night and it was hard. It is, it is, it is an arduous course, but um, I absolutely loved it. Um, and then after that, I went and did P Company, which is the, the paratrooper sort of selection course. Um, I was going to say another training today. course with very little parachuting, lots of running and press ups. <laughs> Oh no, no parachuting. No. Uh, but it's it's not for that. It's actually the, the full name of P Company. It's, it's the pre-parachute selection course. You do you go to P Company, uh, or P's, uh, Pegasus Company. You get thrashed for you know months, um, and then if you're still standing at the end of it, you get your maroon berry, uh, and that qualifies you with the maroon maroon lid, which then qualifies you to go and do the army jumps course. Yeah. So to get going, get your wings. Um, so. So did P Company and then did my jumps course uh, and did the over a few years. Then did my bomb disposal course. Uh, passed that. That is a hard course. It's, it, there's no actually. Th this is the the you know the unique course out there because there's no press ups in that. There's no you. It's a wholly academic course, um, and it's got a savagely high failure rate um, mm. because. On that, on test week, and it's high stress, and they, they purposely make test week super high stress because they're trying to emulate the conditions you know that you'd be under uh, for real if you were dealing with something that could you know blow you up, and um, uh, the you know it's it's a it's a savage week. It's 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 pretty hard, and you know it's pass or fail. It's not like A B C or D. It's pass or fail because again that's they're trying to emulate the real conditions. There's no you can't do do half measures with EOD. Um, and then I did the high-risk search course. And I think between bomb disposal course and the high-risk search course very much formed the backbone of how I approach pretty much everything today. That's where I learned the mm. idea about how to do a threat assessment or, or a risk assessment. And how, okay, how do you, when you can't just turn around and go home, you have to go and do this. How do you deal with it? Um, and and I should say because I don't I don't want this to sound all like oh my god we're you know we're heroes the um because it's not true like it's it's very 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 rare in bomb disposal where you've got to actually you know take your life in your own hands and and do something on the device on yeah. the device itself the the you know because you always encouraged to do the safest possible route for yourself mm. and, and everyone else which is usually walk up place a small charge next to it walk away to a safe area and then just blow it in situ that's it yeah which you know people find dis disappointingly mundane but that's because that's like well let's not mess around with this potentially dangerous thing let's yeah. walk up and we'll just set it off you know sympathetically detonated by using another small charge laid next to it uh, while we are you know sat behind an armored vehicle with a cup of tea and uh job done thank you very much yeah 
I've actually uh, I've actually had you guys called out. I used to uh, I was a Rima recovery mechanic back in the day, and okay. uh, I was up on um, Senelag, a training area in Paderborn, digging a hole with a crav, which is like a challenged um, tank basically yeah. with a big dozer blade on the front, and I caught the very top of an old World War Two um, training bomb from the Germans <laughs> with the phosphorus caps in. Ooh. And I was hatched down and all of my mates just fucking ran off. I could see them through the periscope sprinting across the training area. And then my, my little Nokia 6330 started ringing in my pocket and I took it out and they explained the situation and guided me backwards from this. Well, you did exactly that. You guys turned up, blew it up in situ. Uh, it was yeah. pretty spectacular. I'll your phone. Hi, uh, the reason we're not there anymore is because what you can't see is a yeah. We would get that in the UK all the time. That Well, obviously... That would have probably been British, um, whereas the the ones we get in the UK were, were German. But yeah, every time they do any work, something in Bristol or a place like that, but usually London, like when Canary Wharf was done or when mm. White City was done, they were ever forever digging up, um, you know, old old World War Two German uh, airdropped, uh, you know, bombs, five hundred and thousand pound bombs, um, and we still, again, we, we still, I, I I can only talk up to about two thousand six, um, but certainly when I left, they they were still. We were, we were still using World War Two methods, um, and that wasn't because you know f- for a negative reason. It's because the the best we do with the World War Two bomb was with World War Two me- methods, and it was pretty simple. You know, you were you were drilling holes in the in the in the cap, the kind of the de- de- detonator, um, uh, with a hand drill, little hand drill, and then you were flooding it with a sort of saturated salt solution allows that to dry and the salt crystals basically seize up all the gears and mechanism in there um, and that makes it um, safe but there's, there's, there's actually issues with these things called like things like picric crystals which 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 form on the on the fuse to which can be dangerous but again I'm, I'm probably getting in the weeds a little bit here so um, that's so cool though to hear it that is very cool yeah <laughs> it is um how how was life on ops then I mean, did you have a family at this point, I, or did the family come after? No, no, I was, I was, I was single when I was in the forces. You know, pretty much yeah. the warrior monk, um, and loved it. Um, I loved ops, I really did. Um, you know, I mean, I was very fortunate that nothing disastrous happened to me in operations. And cl- clearly, we had both in EOD and, and, and other units. Um, you know, there was a lot, lot of guys taking hits, um, fatal or, or life changing. Mm. You know, I was very fortunate um, that that I kind of, I, I, I got away with it. And and it wasn't, it was, you know, never because of incompetence. We got some EOD and, and it's through no incompetence. Sometimes, you know, you've got, often what was happening was you've got a, a device and then they'll, they'll, they'll set up other devices purely to try and target the bomb disposal yeah. guy that goes down. Um, so... So you know you can you can do everything right and everything perfectly and and still not walk away. Um, so you know to a certain extent I was I was I was lucky, um, and um, but I I enjoyed my time on ops. Yeah. Um, because there's a great deal of I don't know like lack of like a stress almost that comes with having quite a simple life and I forget about the you know the potential that has this environment and that's your life is pretty simple you're living out of one bag you know mm. you've got a uniform so you don't nothing like you've got to go in the morning choose your clothes and you have a job to do and that's that's your t- entire world yeah um it's a bit like being on an expedition um, it's a very primitive life isn't it it's just a life of yeah. survival and teamwork yeah and nowadays um 
less than a film and documentaries because that's like a, a different sort of system but if when i'm when i'm doing stunts i'm just a stunt performer so i'm like bottom rung the ladder which can be quite nice you know and you if you you're away where we're in italy for for a few weeks um in the summer and you know you, you're told to beat work at this time you, you turn up with this kit and then that that's you you know life is pretty simple you go back to your hotel room again even in your hotel room you've got minimal things you know you just wash your socks pants t-shirt in the shower each night and you, you're good to go so it, it's a simple life which and you're very clear about your purpose and why you're there and what you need to do um so from that point of view it's a it's a very primitive life and um and a simple life which which from from a, I don't know, from a mental health point of view, can actually be quite a positive thing, and mm. and and I, I I you know I'm not an expert on PTSD. There's a lot of people who suffer from it, and I, I don't want to start, you know, voicing opinions about subjects I don't know enough about. But 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 certainly, what seems to be the case is people tend to suffer more when they come home mm. rather than when they're out there, um, because and not just because life is is simpler. Now. But because I think there's that there's that community and camaraderie. Yeah, those external yeah, factors yeah. of the day to day are things that you just don't deal with in in those very kind of refined life situations. You know, I, I again, I absolutely loved being away on ops for exactly the same reasons. There was almost a tighter camaraderie with your crew. Yeah. Life was much simpler. You knew exactly where you stood. There was this kind of continuum of, of movement forwards you were just surviving day after day and it's exactly the same on an expedition it's that you know what the tasks are for the day you break them down you make them as simple as possible to reduce any problems with failures and you just keep continuing but when you come back to the day today and then there's the kids and your misses and other work and things you've not lined up and the emails and you know the missed bill in the mailbox all of those things really do just i think People struggle more, and especially if that experience they've been on wasn't a super exciting expedition. It was actually an op somewhere where something pretty shit happened. And you come back from that situation, and you're trying to deal with that as well as integrating back into the community. I remember, you know, we had these decompression periods, but I mean, two weeks in Cyprus doesn't really decompress you from seven months in the desert. And it's, you know, people did struggle when they got back. Yeah, there's also the idea that, that, People just don't get it, and that when you're an ops, everyone gets it. You're an ops, everyone understands. You come home, your family, you know, your mates in the village, people who who haven't been there and done it, um, and it not just even if even if the, the your ops was was pretty straightforward, as some of mine were, you know, there's no major dramas. It's still a different world. You're still kind of you know you're what you can and can't do, and is is different to normalized, let's invert commas, civilized society. The rules are different. Um, and it can be a struggle adjusting to that. And I, I look back now and realize that I didn't always adjust as well as I thought I was at the time. I was, you know, come straight back from up, straight back home. Yep, I'm, I'm, I, I just flicked the switch and I'm good to go. I'm not, not sure it was quite as simple as that. There's a really good book by a guy called Sebastian Junger called Tribe. Yeah. That talks about this. That it. talks about yeah. the idea of, of, you know, being in a community where everyone understands what you're doing. Um, and he makes the point that you know you're on ops now. You might be SF, you know. You might you might be you know a special forces guy who is literally hitting targets under fire, you know, day in day out, you know, real life on the line stuff like hardcore stuff. Um, 
and he might be coming back and there's there's the medic guy or the admin guy now that, yeah. that admin guy that medic might isn't obviously doing what this this guy's doing but at least they kind of get it they still they understand yeah. what he's been doing and what he's been up against what he's been through um if not you know actually they, they still in, in some way appreciate what what was happened yeah but you come home and you, you buy and you go down tesco's and people around you just 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 aren't going to get it. I how think. did you? How did you feel when you came out? Because I mean, personally, I, I really fucking crashed, man. I really crashed when I came out. I mean, my, um, my wife at the time was still serving. She still is serving now. Um, my ex-wife. Um, but I and I had that small grasp. There was a small kind of. I'd go to the mess three times a year for the summer ball, Christmas ball, and a fancy dress in the middle. But I really struggled, and I didn't realize how much I struggled till about probably four or five years ago. Um, but I find it really difficult. Yeah, again, at the time, like first year out, I thought I'd made the transition instantly. I didn't, I didn't have any problems at all, and yet I barely worked in that first year. Um, I found myself going to bed later and later and getting up later and later, looking back now. And again, you, 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 it took me a few years to look back and go, what the hell was going on there? Mm. And I think when I, when I started working in the ex-forces market, that actually made it easier because again you're surrounded by guys who who are kind of from the similar background yeah um i i mostly did surveillance work when i when i first started working and then i went on to work for a control risk group in either islamabad in, in pakistan on the afghan border mm-hmm. or out in, in west africa um, but again you're surrounded by it's that ex-forces kind of at least mentality the kind of everyone kind of gets it um But yes, yeah, so I think it took time. But but the, the 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 problem was initially is that you know I didn't have a plan. I was like, oh, I'll get out and then I'll 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 do something. I, you know, I would I'd tell my advice be you know, for somebody who's getting out, like start having to think about what you're going to do a year before you get out. Because I just I got out, then I started thinking about it, and uh, and I was a bit I was lost. I think for the first twelve months. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. So what the progression then from from getting out to where you are now? How how did that look? What was the first big break, really? Um, so, uh, as I say, you know, I was I was I was I mentioned before I was working in the ex-forces market, doing a little bit of outdoor work because you know when I was working in sort of well, what do they call it, um, you know, security work. Um, it was normally four six weeks away, and then maybe four weeks back. So in that four weeks back, I'd be doing one projects. Diving projects, I'd be maybe teaching some outdoor stuff, and I'd be uh, I started doing a bit of, of then I started doing some safety work. So usually for the like wildlife documentary stuff, that sort of bits and pieces, uh, in the on the diving front, a little bit of climbing work, but but mostly diving, either as a safety diver or as a dive supervisor. And I started moving more and more into that world and getting more and more work in that, and that was that was really good fun. You know, you'd away, you know, ah, oh, we'll go away for, you know, for four weeks. You know, two weeks in Japan and then two weeks in Namibia and two weeks in the States filming whales and dolphins and sharks or mm. shipwrecks. Uh, and that was really cool, you know, hanging out with, with, with TV crews, doing that sort of thing. Um, and then at the same time, there's a few underwater film festivals knocking around. So I started making little films for those again this is before again before social media before youtube i think you know it's still dv cameras i might have i might have might have gopro one might have just come out the revolutionary gopro one um, very different a lot yeah. less tech than there is now three megapixels <laughs> yeah. um and i was filming so i made a film about thing called the cave of skulls which was a, was a little solo cave diving project 
more, more caving than, than diving, to be honest. But um, And I self-filmed it. And because I was on my own, I was talking to camera. A, to explain stuff, but B, it's quite, I find it quite kind of therapeutic when you're down there on your own in the dark. Mm. Quite nice to just talk to something. Cause, and I often talk to myself when, it, when, I'm, when I'm doing these things, especially if things are getting tricky. Often to debrief myself as well when I'm, when I'm making mistakes. But so I, I created these little films and I did one where we I tried to dive inside an active blowhole, which was exactly as stupid as it sounds. Um, <laughs> Is this the photo of you in the body armor, basically looking like yes. Iron Man? Yes. Yeah, I'd like a lot of like motocross body armor over the top of my wetsuit, um, and uh, so you made these little films. I put them into film festivals, and you know they they they, they got mentions. I don't, know, I don't know if I won anything, but at the same time, I was doing more and more with the with the, with the documentary stuff, especially the BBC, and I'd heard that they were going to do the next series of coasts. A coast, people don't kill coast was the series. Uh, for the BBC that went around the UK um, and they were on like series seven. So they've been around the UK like seven times already. So they're running out of ideas. Um, so I sent the series producer a lot of, a lot of ideas. I hear some ideas and most of it was like, right, I, I, you know, I could, I could uh, take your presenter on like the highest cliffs in the, in the country and the sea cliffs or there's these sea caves and I could, we could go inside them. I could take a present or there's this deep shipwreck that's never been, never been dived. So I could dive it with a camera and then bring that, and sort of give that to your presenter to kind of to kind of you know talk about whatever it was, but that was the pitch. You know, I was very much like I'll be a contributor, and you know, I can I can take your 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 people on on these pla- to these places that you might not even have heard of because if you're a cave diver, yeah. If so, if you're not a cave diver, why would you be interested in finding out about caves? Or you know, mm. if, you're, if you're not a deep technical diver, why would you care about shipwrecks that are like hundred and something meters down? So I pitched that, and then. The series producer and series editor came down to Bristol to see me because they, they were based up in BBC Birmingham at the time. And that was a big deal, which yeah. I didn't really appreciate at the time, them coming to me. And we had this meeting at a cafe, and they started off with, right, so um, uh, we're just wondering if you would still be interested in presenting if the idea wasn't, like, extreme. <laughs> tame it back, tame yeah. it back. And then in my head, I was like, say what? Yeah. <laughs> Because that, was, that wasn't my pitch at all, um, and I was like, well, I think they've got the wrong end of the stick here." I wasn't, I wasn't pitching for a presenter's job, but they'd, they'd seen most of the videos that I'd, I'd made. I think it was on my website, or I don't know whether they'd seen mm. it anyway. And um, yeah, that's the uh, so obviously again, this is all happening in a millisecond in my head, and I went, "Why? Yes, I would." You know, <laughs> probably not probably not quite Thank as like, like yeah. I was like, uh, "Yes," you know. Get, I was suddenly like, "Right, get your game face on. Pretend you knew this all along." <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. And um, it's all really cool because we've got we've got our, we've got all our ideas already for series seven or eight, which were seven it was. Um, but we'd like to slot you into this one idea for one of the one of the little bit do a little five minute slot in this episode. Um, on shepherding on the Isle of Lewis. <laughs> oh, uh, so they sent me off, um, and it went. It didn't go that well. Uh, I mean, I was I was appalling as a presenter. I was whenever I started, I was t- I'm better now, but I was absolutely terrible at it. Um, thank God for the edit. They don't call me forty-seven take job for nothing, you know. But the um, so fortunately, the, the the local shepherds were not the friendliest of people. Uh, they were fine with me. Um, but you know the crew from like London, they were a bit like, oh, you know, we're not, we're not being a bit kind of being a bit, bit kind of prejudiced against the, yeah. the you know the, the 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 TV crew from London. Um, 
so we're in the on this big sort of mountainside, and they just marched off into the gloom because the, the mist came down. They, they just trundled off, and um, we had three cameras. I had a small camera. The researcher had a sort of medium-sized camera. The camera guy had a massive camera, but. I was still working as a as a mountain guide, like civilian, uh, like mountain leader and mountain guide, and that uh, you know, uh, in, in yeah. the Breckens and 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 up in Sedonia. So I was still pretty mountain fit, you know, and all that stuff. And I obviously had a map and compass in my pocket because I was like, well, you don't go in the mountains with hills without a map and compass. So, long story short, I ended up taking all three cameras and sticking my rucksack, and then <laughs> leading the team over the hill. Because like, right, I know where they're going to be. They're going to be at the pens where the boat is because this was a little offshore island. And I'll, I'll just navigate us down there. So we went up the ridge and took us down. We cracked on, thought nothing of it. Because bear in mind, I'd never been in front of a camera before. So I had no point of reference. So I was like, oh, this is just standard. That's cool. Give me the cameras and I'll get, we'll just, and just follow me. So we got back and they're up to BBC uh, Birmingham to see the, the sort of exec producer. And he's like, oh, thank you so much. You know, you went above and beyond the call of duty. We really, really appreciate it. We'd never normally ask you to do that sort of thing. It's amazing. Um, so we're going to offer you like more slots on the series. Um, so I, I maintain that, you know, my, my tele career was, is purely based on the foundation that I can read a map and carry heavy kit up a hill. That's, that's the only reason I actually maintained any sort of TV <laughs> yeah. career. And, a, and a, an originally um, kind of misinterpreted pitch. Mm. Yeah, entirely. And it's still true now. And again, this is not me trying to be, be humble. I've got mates who are really like, you know, quite frankly, a, a list kind of, TV presenters, um, in the documentary world, you know, um, and they're very, very, very good at what they do. Very, mm. very good. I've watched them, um, and I've been on set, like on set. I've been in the field with them. We're like, yeah, I'm doing safety diagnosis, climbing for them, but I've been involved and I watched them. And like, bloody hell, they, they are, they're the real deal. I'm actually not that great, to be honest. I'm okay. I can string a sense together, but they tend to wheel me in when they can't have anyone else. But you're doing pretty well now, Andy. So it's, uh... well, I'm doing right. But anyway, the uh, yeah. Off in time. So, you know, cave diving, right, get them in. We did, we did, um, we dived the shipwreck of Britannic, which is Titanic's twin sister. It's 120 mm. meters down in the, in the, in the Aegean Sea off, off Greece. Um, and they initially got me in contact with me, uh, and I spoke to about my agent. And I was like, oh, I really, really want to do this. I really want to do this. So let, let's make sure we don't charge too much because, I, you know, I, I quite frankly, I do this for free. And she was like, first things first, don't ever say that to anyone ever again. <laughs> Value your time. Yeah, and, and, and secondly, this is this is yours. Don't worry about it. This is definitely your gig. And it's like, oh, how are you so sure? And she's like, well, can you name me another presenter that can dive to 120 <laughs> metres? And I was like, uh, oh, yeah, I know we thought of that way. So, you know, the, the producers could have thought I was the single worst presenter in the world. They're like, well, we have got to use him. Jesus Christ, right? You know, I am very much the... Um, the monkey they fire into space to, to bring you know bring back stuff on the real side just but i don't mind because it's, it's you know i get i get for me i get all the interesting bits i get the, the diving and the climbing and the skydiving stuff so i don't care it's all good and you've had you're looking at some i was looking through your reel and i was like this is this is the dream right here you you've tried out these sort of deep sea diving suits which you know you're articulated you're basically in a submersible of, of your own mm. what was that transition like going from both military parachuting and diving to this sort of it's still commercial work but it i i would feel like it's a bit different in terms of that mentality between you know handling whatever you're doing in the military to to doing it in civilian world like i hear stories of some people that have done hundreds of of combat jumps uh, in the u.s military and now they don't jump in civvy street because they've decided that it's it's just 
the it was the safety culture that I hear a lot of them talk about, which is you know you all checked each other's shoots back at, uh, in the military, and then he went on a, a skydive in the in the US, and he was like, "You happy with my shoot? It's been a, you know a couple months or something." And the guy was like, without looking, was like, "Yeah, that's cool, man," and just walked off. And he was like, "I don't feel safe in that environment." Is that the same with you? Um, no, I mean, y- y- you know, say my experience of of skydiving is very different to that. Like we both, certainly in the UK, I think on the on the US place, I've jumped quite a lot in the US. Um, is very much like you're doing body checks. So again, you know, I've got one and a half thousand jumps and, and the guy I do a lot of jumps with um make you love more has got like five thousand jumps like super experienced guy mm-hmm. ninja ninja flyer on, on flight line like before we get in the plane we'll still he'll still check me over i'll still check him over in fact in the uk you've got a sign usually most drops they make you sign to so so i'll sign to see i've checked his kit and he'll sign to see he's checked mine so you know um never underestimate your own ability to be an idiot you know, no matter how mm. good you are, how experienced you are, because we're all bad days. Like, I've done it before. People have gone, oh, you know, is is you know, the first thing you, you when you check someone's uh, parachute equipment, you say, oh, uh, is your AAD turned on? Your AAD is an as a uh, a little device that will open your reserve parachute at a certain altitude if you are, for example, unconscious. Okay, so it's a sort of backup system. Um, it's only happened once. And he's like, right, you know, AAD on. I'm like, oh, actually. No, it's not. I forgot. Mm. You know, I thought, well, there you go, mate. That's why we do the checks. Yeah. Um, so when, you, when you're solo cave diving, you know, you've even got a buddy there. I, I'm I'm even more meticulous. I, I'll check and then actually, you know, pre-breathe in the set if, or pre-breathe uh, if it's a rebreather and all that sort of things. Mm. And then I'll go under the water and I'll check everything again before I move off and all that sort of stuff. Um, so, no, I mean, I've there's a, I, I've found there's a lot of crossover, a lot of positive crossovers and certainly I still kind of dive and skydive and do the other sort of things with the same mentality that I was taught in the forces. And I'll say a lot of that came from doing bomb disposal and high research, which is like, you know, right, where are the risks? And, and actually, where are the important risks? Because you can't, you know, um, you almost, you, you, you want to focus your efforts onto the things that will cause you serious harm or kill you. Um, and they are not always what you think. Um, I think people often aren't clinical enough when they come to, to threat or, or, or risk assessments um but but no i've 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 not found the civilians of cave diving technical diving skydiving world um more complacent than the forces at all um because and i think if anything not, not say more so but in a different way because in the forces you've got a team you've got systems in place all that stuff's quite kind of regimented in, in, in that way Whereas I think there's a lot more emphasis on on, on personal responsibility in the civilian world. Certainly mm. within the circles that I operate with, the, the divers and, and jumpers that I, I, I work or, or, or play with. Um, but, you know, maybe that's maybe that's also a, a, a partly of the, the people that I choose to spend my time with. That if I think you are a complacent dickhead, mm. then I don't want to jump with you and I don't want to dive with you because you're just going to get yourself or me killed. So, yeah. No, I totally get that. And I think on the flip side, you probably some of these guys that I've heard stories of have had really bad experiences. I think it, it is really dependent on, on who you die with. So can you just explain to us the difference in... Because I dive a Poseidon rebreather. So I'm back-mounted. It's quite a big, chunky piece of kit when I've got it on. When you're going into these caves, especially these really tight ones, 
do do back mounted rebreathers get in the way? Do you side mount? I know they've now got these like front plated ones as well. What sort of kit do you use when you're doing your dives? Um, you make the dive the the kit match the dive. Not that we're running too many people. Not too many people, but but some people will will buy a nice piece of cool shiny kit like a rebreather, which is very expensive, mm. and they will then start to try and make that fit into every dive. Doesn't work. So um, the simple answer is, if you're doing a long or deep dive that requires a rebreather and it's too tight for back mount, then you need to go and get a side mount rebreather and learn how to use it properly. Mm. Um, chest mount rebreathers, again, they have their place, again, on, on, on small confined areas. or And, and chest mount rebreathers aren't new. The, the first rebreathers really in the world were chest mount rebreathers um, that were you know military ones back from the 30s. So the rebreathers existed before scuba. Divers were using, re military divers were using rebreathers, I think, in the early 30s before scuba was, was invented. Um, but at the same time, so I've got rebreathers and they're great and they're expensive, so I want to use them as much as possible. And, and I prefer them. I think they are, if used correctly, safer than scuba gear in many ways mm. because they give you more time and most problems can be solved under, most things that will kill you underwater wouldn't kill you if you had infinite time. Yeah. You know, getting That's lost, true. getting tangled and stuff, you know, it's, and, 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 for time C, the ability to breathe. It's your breathing gas, whatever it is, that, or, your, or your your CO2 scrubber, in the case of um, rebreathers, that are your limiting mm. factor. Your your ability to breathe tends to be your limiting factor. Um, so, so, yeah, I think that... Because um, when you're doing these ex explorations, you know, you're diving places that haven't been dived hmm. before or maybe have been limited diving experience or limited dry caving experience, how do you, like I've seen videos of you like carrying all this kit in, which is just insane to me, but how do you choose what you're going to take if you don't know what's ahead? Well, you, you can, sometimes it's been partially explored before, um, mm. or um, you can look at the what the dry cave looks like uh, or other caves in the area and, and make a best. But you're right, the part of the exploration is you might dive in with your back mount rebreather and you might get in a little bit and it closes down like, ah, okay. I need to. That, that's the nature of, of, of exploration. Right, you turn, go, go back, and then come back next year with a completely different kit setup. Um, you know, because even like scuba gear has its place. If if I'm in, in the UK, there's only one or two dives that you. It's really one dive that I know of. You need a rebreather for. Um, there are some that it can be beneficial, but can be done with big scuba cylinders. But the vast, vast, vast majority of cave diving in the UK. Rebreathers are a pointless because it's relatively short sumps of like a few meters or a few hundred meters, um, or it's too tight certainly for for back mount rebreathers, or even big bulky side mount rebreathers. A lot of the cave diving you do in the UK, you're doing it on three liter cylinders or five liter cylinders or seven liter cylinders. You know, relatively small cylinders, which have the benefit they're much um, lighter to carry. So. You know, even a little, two little, three litre, which we call pony bottles, you know, in yeah. diving, um, you know, they might be far, far more appropriate, far better kit for exploration than a 10 grand high tech rebreather. You know, you, you, you pick the dive, the objective, the dive site, you know, look at all that and they go, right, what, what is the best piece of equipment to, to, to secondarily succeed at the mission, but primarily to keep me alive? Yeah, it's so interesting because. I'm only really just scratching the surface of rebreathers and I find it so I, I feel very safe actually because my rebreather does a lot of self-testing and so if, if it doesn't like something you don't dive it my friend 
dives to JJ and he doesn't understand why I chose a Poseidon. But it's interesting to me that there is a, that sort of mentality in terms of gear and ex, and sort of experimentation and what worked. Do you feel that we've become too reliant on our gear and and trying to have all this tech? Is it better to just strip it away and go back to what it used to be? Well, in terms of diving, you, you, you are reliant on tech. You know, you can't mm. you can't do a, 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 a two kilometer or three kilometer, you know, five, five in case of some case, like a five kilometer dive. You, you're underwater for like five, six, seven hours to a maximum depth of maybe pushing to 105 meters. We did one year before last go with, with Chris. Um, mm. You can't do that in scuba, which is, which is technology itself. But you need a rebreather, which has got tech on it. Um, and even the most beta, I've got a JJ as well, which is a fairly Land Rover Defender of rebreathers. Yeah, it's still got auction sensors in there, and it's still got a, a dive computer computer to read those auction sensors and give you information. You can't, so you have to have some level of technology. You know, purely mm. mechanical doesn't work. You do get mechanical rebreathers, but they've still got uh, auction sensors in them and a computer because you need to be able to know what gas well, makes you your breathing. Yeah. Um, so. I think that we have to be careful that we don't become too heavily reliant on technology that we stop understanding how that technology works. So the, mm. the Poseidon rebreather, I'm not doubt it's, it's a good rebreather. It's not a bad, it's a good starter rebreather because it, like say, it does a huge amount for you. But it doesn't, it doesn't force you to interpret information as much as the JJ does, which is mm. fine at the start. But the JJ gives you the sort of basic information and then you've got to interpret that, which allows you to decide what you can and can't do um and potentially where you can and or don't need to bail out so i think we still we you know like for example i've got an iphone i've got no idea how an iphone works no idea mm. and i'm never going to learn i don't care i don't know how wi-fi works or the internet it's quite frankly wizardry <laughs> right yeah. absolute wizardry like even just f making a phone call from a mobile phone to like australia how the hell is that? It's, it's numbers, ones, zeros and ones, and I was like, the satellite back down, like, no, 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 stop, stop. It's wizardry. <laughs> witchcraft. It is, it is. It's witchcraft, you know. Um, and that's fine, because not knowing how to use an iPhone or how, how it physically works mm. uh, is not going to be a danger to me. Whereas my rebreather, even though it does a huge amount for it, um, for, sorry, for me, and I can look at the readout and go, cool, cool, cool. When things start going wrong, I okay, it's, it's one one cell's reading this and two cells, auction sensor cells, sorry, for people mm. who, who aren't sure. It's giving me different readouts. What does that mean? What do I need to do to fix it or, or what do I need to do to carry on? Because bailing out sometimes isn't the best option and potentially I might be in a, in a cave. I've got a long, long dive out and mm. I bet I'm better to stay on my rebreather. So can I safely stay on it? Is one of my cells broken or is... Or to myself, bro. You know, what, what's going on with my rebreather? Yeah. So, it's beneficial for me from a safety point of view to understand how that technology works. Um, so, so yes, I think we have to be. We, we, we are reliant on technology when we're diving, much like skydiving. You know, mm. a, a, a parachute, although it's very kind of mechanical, it's very physical. A parachute, it's still it's still technology. I mean, parachutes these days are phenomenal. It's like like 30, 40 years ago, a parachute or a, or a, so we, it's not actually a parachute, a canopy, a wing mm. that we fly now in, in skydiving, is a phenomenal bit of kit. Phenomenal bit of kit. Um, and all the sort of and even the small amounts of electronic technology in you know, this this AD that will automatically pop your reserve if you're going. 
uh, too fast at a certain altitude, all this sort of stuff. That's amazing, but again, you have to understand how it, how it operates and why it operates, because that will give you an advantage in situations where things are going wrong. And it's all about increasing your chance of getting out and going home. And just on that, I'm curious, does the AED, do you have to have cut away from your primary sheet for that to activate your reserve, or will it cut away? No, and all an AED does is it effectively releases the 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 little thing that's holding your reserve in right right okay um so so no that's all it does the the main idea behind it is if you are unconscious um and you go through a ceiling and you can stay with that ceiling is say it's at 800 feet and you're still doing like over 74 miles an hour i think is that is my ad set for it will go right you're still in free fall i'm going to pop this reserve which is why that sort of altitude i mean i wouldn't do it at 700 feet anyway but i don't start like pulling on my main if i put my main out and it's good my main canopy and it's good i don't start pulling massive spirals because that will spiral you down super fast because i might then start descending above 74 miles right, an hour okay. which means my reserve is going to pop into my main that's Which not, is not good. Two out. No. It's not not a good place to be having two yeah. two parties out. Um, so so no. All an AD will it, it will do is it will it will release your reserve canopy. Um, but no, it, it, I mean, but it saved it saved lives. So it saved a lot of lives over the years. They've been around for you know they're not a new technology. They've been around for years, but and they have saved saved they have saved lives. I've tried to do my static training twice in the UK, and both times I, I've got suited up. We, you know, getting ready to get in the aircraft, and they're like, "No, it's too windy." So I've got to go somewhere with better weather okay. to. Uh... <laughs> what well, I mean, so we we're running. Um, we run myself and uh, Mike, you know, another friend of mine, is a stunt guy. We we run some some AFF, so accelerate free fall, like basically zero hero training, um, as well as progression stuff. Out in uh, we're going to Seville this year for the first two weeks in January, and it's mostly aimed at stunt guys and girls, but. Um, you know, we, we we've got some we've got spare places, so anybody wants to come can come out. And um, this was sounds this, real fun. <laughs> Good this was, way to kick off this, the year. <laughs> this wasn't meant to be an advertisement pitch, but if you if you want to uh, if you want to if you're interested, let me know and I'll, I'll post you some some details. But because obviously the that's the thing with UK jumping in the UK can be amazing in, in summertime or when the weather's good because you know especially in the summertime because our days are so much longer because we're mm. further north, but. It's not the ideal place to, 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 to live if you want to skydive every day. That's why we, most Brits will go to places like Portugal or Spain. Mm. Um, I've been to the US a lot, like Arizona. Uh, there's, a, there's a drop zone in Arizona that I love that I've been to like half a dozen times over the years. So, yeah, it's you, if you want to be a skydiver in the UK, you have to learn patience. And <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, I, I know what to have a backup plan. So, Andy, where does... You've obviously done some amazing dives all around the world, whether mm. that's deep uh, deep diving in itself, doing wreck penetrations, doing cave diving. What would your advice be? Obviously, get experience and build up to it slowly. But what would your advice be for people that want to go do expedition diving? Um, if they want to organize their own expeditions, then I would say just go and do it. Which, which sounds very kind of cliched or twee, but it's one of the lessons I learned. I started later than I should have done because I was waiting to find out what the secret was. I was looking at these other other guys go off and doing expeditions, whether it's diving or climbing, what have you. Going, oh, how have they done that? How have they done that? Well, I, I can't figure it out. So, so in the meantime, while I'm waiting to figure it out, I'll go and do this project. And then, okay, I still haven't figured it out, but I'll go and do this project while I'm kind of waiting to figure it out. And then, you know, six projects, and you're like, 
oh hang on a minute the, there wasn't a secret you just just go and do it just just put your finger out you know <laughs> basically um and um you know if you can't physically can't start big then start small because there's still projects in the uk people go oh i'm gonna mm. have time and i'm gonna have money well this we are we are doing a, a cave diving exploration project me and some friends in a, in a cave in wales and i live right in the english welsh border so across the river why from me is the cave it's about five minutes from my house and there's genuine exploration going on going on and they're underwater so there are these projects um and the second thing I think I would say is that if you want to get on other expeditions, if you're you know if you're a young diver and you want to get on these these projects abroad, often expeditionary diving isn't always necessarily technical in the sense you need rebreathers and mixed gases. Often it's just on scuba because you might be mm. in some very very remote area where all you can do is take a compressor, buy some petrol from the local village, and fill cylinders with air. That's it. So it's, you know you can limited by the logistics. In which case, secondary skills are super useful. Like if you turn up and you're like, I'm a ninja technical rebreather cave diver with no other skills, or I'm a basic scuba air diver, but I'm also you know a, a medic or you know first aider. I can fix compressors, I can fix regs, you know, regulators, you know, I can cook, you know, you know that sort of stuff, you know, basic stuff <laughs> like that. Well, I'm like, you're both going to be doing the same diving. I don't need you to be a ninja diver. You're not any better than the guy can because you're limited by the equipment. Mm. However, all those mechanical fixing sort of domestic skills or medical skills are super super useful so mm. certainly i'd be more inclined to take some expedition who had those sort of skills than not and the final thing i'd say and this goes true for expeditions it goes true for, for a lot of the, the, the stunt teams I've, I've been lucky enough to be part of and is don't be a dick yeah <laughs> solid advice you know i <laughs> genuinely and I, I, you know hands up i i've probably been that guy at, at times uh, in the past um but you know being being a being a good lad and being be able to get on with people can be a massive asset because if you're going to be working a team on a stunt film for six months or you know you're on a documentary filming for months and months or you're on an expedition for a month there's all these hard external factors you know being able to get on with people that that's often you know and i've had i've had for people who are in charge of these sort of projects say to me yeah i've got two guys if they're, they're both as good as each other, I'm going to take the one who's a nicer person. Yeah. Or mm. even, and if he's slightly less competent than the other guy, unless it's so special, so super specialist that I need that 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 second guy, I'm still going to take the guy who's who's a, who's a nicer human being to be around. Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, we have to live together in a confined space and not kill each other. Yeah, and not kill each other on the process. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm just going to bring it back to risk a little bit, mate. You mentioned before about, you know, the ultimate goal is to put these things in place and to, to get back home. You mentioned that you were living the true dream when you were in the military. Uh, obviously now you're a family man. How have you, how has the, your perception of risk changed? Has it changed or does it just make you a little bit more thorough? You mean since having kids? So yeah, since having kids, yeah. Um, Once, so how you, when you push yourselves, these limits you push. So, so yeah, this this is a question actually I, I, I get asked quite a lot, especially at, at like you know dive shows and that, and doing talks and you do a lot of Q and A at the end. People go, oh my God, how you, how'd your wife cope with all this and your, your kids? Yeah, how, how it's changed since you've had kids. It hasn't really, because well, well, some things have changed, but my approach to risk has not. Like when I was, you know, even in my twenties, because because it was hammered into you in the forces about, well, especially the bomb disposal and high research, you know how to do it properly 
um, was to not take risks, was to try to make it as safe as possible. So I had, you know, I had zero ch intention of killing myself before I had kids. You know, I can't, I can't, I can't get much less. So than, than, than zero. So my approach to risk is the same. I, I am genuinely, I don't, I'm no more thorough and I'm no more risk averse and I'm no more paranoid than I ever was. I was always pretty, you know, I'm saying that, yeah. People see what I do and they go, oh "My God, you know, he's an adrenaline junkie, or he's a daredevil, or he's fearless, or, or he's, he's an idiot." None of those things are true. Maybe the last one, arguable, <laughs> a calculated but, but, one. But I'm, no. well, I'm, yeah, exactly, <laughs> a smart idiot. Uh, but I'm, you know, I'm one of those paranoid and cautious person you're likely to meet. That's why I'm, I'm still here. Um, mm. So having kids didn't really change that. The only thing it changed was that I think I, I'm a lot more aware of being judged. Um, by them because one day they will be old enough to, to look back at what I've done and especially with technology these days you know the, the podcast that I do or the, the TV that I've done or, or, or articles they'll be on the net forever yeah. forever and yeah. ever some of that is regrettable you know look back at some of the telly stuff I've done or even even the podcast I did in the early days where I you know it, I was like oh god I was going to delete that <laughs> so you know so they'll get to 16, 18, mm. 21, and they'll be able to look back at this stuff. Whether well, they will or I don't know, but they'll be able to judge me and be like, oh, that was cool, or you were a sellout, or that wasn't true, or so whatever. So, mm. yeah, it's changed my perspective in that way that I'm like, right, I need to be, I need to make sure, you know, I'm not, I'm not full of shit, quite frankly. Yeah. It, it must be really, like, hands up i don't have kids but i i still think about that now i think nowadays you really got to think about you know, the, the image that you represent i was just on an expedition uh leading youth development in kyrgyzstan and, you know i, I saw those guys that i was tr uh, leading uh, just last week and you realize that the for now pronounced like impact that you can have on people and you know they they go and they they tell me they've done all these things and they didn't feel like they could do them, but after the trip, they did. And you know, small acts, even if it's just a post on Instagram or just having a conversation with someone, can really have that profound impact. So, on that, Andy, where, what's next for you? Obviously, skydiving in Seville. I'll, I'll have to talk to you about that off off camera. Yeah, we might need to remove that from the podcast, otherwise it will fill up <laughs> before we can uh, I can clear my diary. Yeah. Ah, be right. Um, so, what's next? So, let's have a think. Uh, uh, a couple of weeks time I'm off to Portugal to do some skydiving with a with a friend of mine from Bulgaria um which will be he's 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 a crazy dude in, in the best possible <laughs> way but actually getting super safe so I'm looking forward to that I've got a, a week in France doing some cave diving um just to test some kitten out with a, with a friend of mine and then after Christmas uh I'm in um, in Spain for a couple of weeks to coach and skydiving and then straight off the back of that I'm doing a well hopefully if the weather's good you know, it doesn't rain too much in France. I'm doing a, a solo exploration project in France where I'm going to dive in. It's about a two-kilometer dive. Then you surface in a dry cave, carry a kit through, do another dive into a second dry cave. Obviously, now you're completely locked off from the rest of the world. And I'm going to camp there for three or four nights um, and then do this little side tunnels that I'm going to go and explore kind of each day. Uh, and then, so that's going to be... That's um, that's the first thing in a while. That I'm like, okay, because that, that just from a, from a psychological point of view, you know, being underground on your own in the dark for days and days on end, 
Um, I'm really thinking about how to create, you know, almost like psychological crutches for myself mm. uh, to keep myself kind of, kind of sane. So that's 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 kind of January, um, and then yeah, we'll see after that. I've got I've got ideas, but again, with all these things, I've got about fifty ideas for 2024, of which <laughs> if I'm lucky, one or two will come off. Um, and then it obviously depends on work because you know it's always balancing. Um, we are shooting a new. Uh, I, I kind of stepped away from the TV presenting um, in the last four or five years and was focusing from a work sense on, on the on the sort of stunt world. But I'm um, I'm filming a, a new series for Nat Geo. I'm only a sm- I'm only playing a very small part in it. Um, it's a military history thing. So we'll finish that just before just in January. Um, so there might be a bit of TV next year. Who, who knows? Um, and then from a stunt point of view, you know, again, I'll, you know, that's that's kind of that's the work stuff, and that'll depend on when this this. Um, this kind of Hollywood strike thing comes to an end and what happens there. Um, but project-wise, hopefully lots more skydiving uh, pro- you know, ideas. I've got some stuff about high-altitude and night balloon jumps in Bulgaria to, 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 try, Jesus. And get, <laughs> to try and get off the ground. Uh, and then the, Literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then cave diving-wise, and, and, and uh, yeah, the, the, the big one, I think, the, the major one is this one in January, and then I've got one in Turkey that I would really like to do, but it's going to require an awful lot of red tape to get permission to dive the site I want to dive. So um, I'll have to keep that one under an my ex- heart. An exciting 2024 ahead, Andy. Hopefully. Ho- who knows? Who knows? So to, to round it off, we've been doing this thing uh, in, in season one of the podcast, you know, talking about expedition essentials. Hmm. So is there three things that you bring with you on your expeditions? You know, you've got all your normal kit, but your your really important personal items. What, what would those three be for you? Okay, the first two are easy. Take a blade and take a head torch. Uh, <laughs> 100% because you can't see what you're doing and, or you know or a toss a light whatever it is you know but take a form of light because if you can't see what you're doing you're, you're kind of you're kind of buggered um and i often ha- I, even like on a cave or a camp i've got a really tiny 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 little head toss that i hang around my neck when i'm in my mm. bag at night because if anything goes wrong i can pop that on so i can find my actual big head torch you know if it all if, if it's all going a bit pete tong um whatever you in the campsite Scrabbling around for your head torch, the last thing you want to be doing. So take a head torch, uh, take a blade of some description. Um, it's a very, having a knife is a super useful tool. I carry two when I skydive. I carry at least three or four when I'm cave diving. You know, I carry one when I'm doing any climbing stuff. Uh, you know, it's just, it's a very, very useful tool to have a blade on. You'd be surprised at how many things can be solved mm. from having a sharp knife. And then the third thing, I'm trying to make it universal that kind of, uh, this is the stumper. Oh, yeah. Take, take, take a camera because if it's, you know, if you can't post it on Instagram, it never happened. Yeah. Uh, no. The, the what would I take with me? What would I take with me if there's a third thing? Um, another knife. Another another <laughs> knife. Well, okay, for talking for expeditions, one thing I found super, super useful over the years is I've got one of those little sports bottles with a filter in it. Okay, yeah. It filters out all your your giardia and your and your, your bacteria and protozoa and even heavy metals. I've used that loads. I use it in caves because it means I can I have to take water in me. Uh, I can just I can dive through with it and then fill it up as I go. And it's great because I can fill it with water when I dive. Then it's effectively weightless. And then when I when I emerge from the sump, so the underwater part, and I'm going through a dry cave, I can empty it out. So now it's you know practically weightless. So it's really good for that. But also taken to countries like. You know, I've stayed in some places skydiving in Spain where perhaps the water from the hotel tap wasn't actually that drinkable. 
Mm. But it's great. Just fill it from the tap, and it's cool. You're hundred percent. So, um, both either on expeditions or actually just in hotels and places you might not want to drink the water. I found a, a yeah, one of the sports bottles with a really good filter has been been worth its weight in gold over the years. Yeah, there's maybe awesome. my three things then. There you go. I like that. No, it, it's one of those things. I I didn't think about it till then, but obviously most of the caves you're diving are freshwater caves, so you don't have to worry about about salt water and trying to and try and drink that and desalinate it. So that's great that you just have like water with you all the time. And then the final question is, what would try and get it in one line if you can? What would your essential advice be to people wanting to be explorers and adventurers? One line's a challenge for me. <laughs> and don't worry, I'll cut it at yeah. one point. So it sounds like you did it. You had it off the cuff. Genuinely, just as I said before, just get out there and do it. Uh, because the people who are out there doing it aren't necessarily the most skilled or the most qualified for be, to be doing that thing. They're just the ones that got off their backside. And you'd be surprised how easy it is to be a genuine explorer. And that's why... You know, I, I don't mind using the phrase like underwater explorer. It sounds very grand, but it's actually because it's, it's super easy to do. <laughs> you know, in the UK, even in the UK, so we've got 25,000 miles of coastline in Britain, uh, about 10,000 miles of rivers and about 10,000 lakes, right? The vast majority of that underwater has never been, you know, eyeballed by a human being. And the vast majority of that is a meter deep, which means you can be a genuine underwater explorer with nothing more technical than a mask and snorkel. I love that. Easy. That's amazing. Well, Andy. That's beautiful. Yeah. That, that's, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm speechless. Andy, thank you so much. Man. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Not at all. Thank you, guys. Cheers. And that concludes another amazing episode of medicine on the frontier thank you all so much for listening and supporting our podcast as we've grown it through what's very nearly the end of our first season we have two episodes left guys we've got some great news coming up on our christmas special as well for things to come in the future we look forward to sharing even more stories with you as we explore medicine on the frontier